Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. Guys, today's guest is a special treat for us all. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked, and has dedicated himself to a life of teaching a mastery of all things public speaking. Please welcome the show, Tyler Foley. Tyler, welcome. Oh, Samuel, it's a joy and a pleasure to be here. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, I have no idea what we're going to talk about. All my notes revolve around speaking naked. I'm sure that's going to be a, a wonderful thing to get into. But, you've, dude, you've got a lot more on your resume than that. Um, you've got everything from acting to engineering to uh, photogrammetry, which I had to actually go and look up what that meant so I could have an intelligent discussion about it. <laughs> so for all the entrepreneurs on the show, um, let's, uh, let's leave – Let's leave the book journey for a little bit later and just give us a real quick overview of who you are and uh, what it is you actually do. Well, so who I am is multifaceted. I mean, I'm uh, a father, a husband, a son, a seeker of warm beaches, lover of fine chocolate, best-selling author, public speaker, serial entrepreneur, because I've been self-employed since I was six years old. So <laughs> That's probably why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it depends on the day. It, honestly, actually, it doesn't even depend on the day. It depends on the hour of which hat I am wearing. Today is a perfect example of that. Uh, you know, I woke up very much in consulting mode. And then I was in father mode because being self-employed, I have the luxury mm -hmm. currently of being able to work from home. And because it's summer, my daughter's off of school. And uh, in as soon as you and I are done, I will go rapidly into husband mode because my wife's vehicle is in the shop she has my truck <laughs> she wants to go for lunch i need to do some running around because then i have a, a back to consulting mode in the afternoon i have two business meetings this afternoon so i've got to pick up the truck feed my family uh, get my daughter to one of the nanas and then go and do the meetings so it's it really depends minute to minute is is what i'm doing but as an overall and an overview uh, that is who I am, you know, and it's it's been a fun 44 years revolving around this planet to be the life of one Tyler Foley. Dude, you, you nailed it, though, because it's it's so critical. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs miss this in that you're not an entrepreneur all day. Like your identity's not wrapped up in the entrepreneur. And, and I know a lot of younger guys, myself included, when I was younger, make this mistake in that you've got to do all the business stuff all day long. And then when you get home at six or seven or eight o'clock at night, then you've got to go do the dad stuff and the husband stuff. And, and it doesn't work that way man you're you're the exact example and and my schedule's the same i've got i've got kids here they're in the other room i'm recording this uh in my house um it's summertime and you know i've done dad stuff today i'm doing interview stuff right now i've done a bunch of consulting this morning and i've got kids stuff this afternoon as soon as, as soon as we're done with this interview and then i'll work again tonight and i think far too many of us do business all day and forget that like really life is just as important so uh Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. How long, Tyler, have you been an entrepreneur? Because I took a peek at your resume and there was some acting stuff early on as well. So uh, tell, tell me a little bit about your journey from high school to adulthood. And, and you know, I, I know you said you started at six years old. Um, 
I, I too started very young. Tell us a little bit about the early days and your journey into entrepreneurship. Well, I started on stage when I was six years old. And I think that was that those first inklings of entrepreneurship. I think a lot of people don't understand that uh, actors are self-employed. Yes. Like you, you're, you are your own business. You are your name Inc. And in fact, I was actually registered as Sean Tyler Foley Inc. Like that was one of my first registries. Um, and it's why I still have the, I, when URLs were first coming out, I had SeanTylerFoley.com. I've owned that URL. Oh, it's gotta be, tw- it's over 20 years now. Cause mm. I think I first registered it in 1997. Mm-hmm. Might've been 1998. So like we're, that's 25 years. Do, do you know the U- You know the URL I registered in 1997 was samuelsmith.co.uk. And I ended up letting it go and the brewery ended up getting it, the, the multinational yeah. brewery. But I had my own. I, I was right there with you in 96, 97 when, it, when that shit first came out, man. I just, I never kept mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I don't know that there's any. The funny thing is, is I've tried to register tylerfoley.com and it's, 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 I don't know who has it, but it's hard. And I keep looking for it. And every once in a while, they're like, hey, you can get this for six grand. I'm like, not for my name. I won't. No, no. <laughs> well, yeah. But. Sam Sam so, Smith is a little more expensive now. Some some singer I, guy I, jacked it. Yeah, no kidding. But uh, so I, you know, I, I have always been self-employed. Like it, that that has just been kind of my identity. Right. Um, along with you know performer and actor and entertainer, um, all of those things were kind of encompassed in my DNA and who I was. Mm-hmm. So growing up, particularly in the arts, and then I attended a fine arts high school. When I graduated, it was just an obvious next step. Like, why would I get a nine to five job mm-hmm. when I can do this thing that I love and make money doing it? Because I'd been like, it wasn't even like I had to prove the concept. It was already a proven concept. Like we're talking 12 years at that point where mm-hmm. I had been <laughs> earning money was like, I could do this. Right, so right. I just, you know, I, I, whether it was informed or naivety or a little bit of both went out to Vancouver, which is the Hollywood North here in mm-hmm. Canada mm-hmm. and, and just started acting. Like it was just, that's, that's what you do. Like, obviously that's where I'm going to go because it's the main epicenter. It's where the majority of the work is going to be done. So I have a higher percentage of being able to earn a living doing it out there. And I did it very happily until my mid twenties, at which point I had become really, really um, complacent with performance. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, I used to do it because it was fun. Like it was right. exciting. It was a thing that I just, it lit me up. It was a passion. I had no problem getting up at four in the morning for a five o'clock call time. Like it would, it would I absolutely let's go play on set. Yeah. Um, but at 25, it had become a, grind and again i've been doing it for 20 years yeah yeah yeah. and and particularly for those that last seven uh because it was a full-time job like previously it was easy for me to be like yeah i've done it for 20 years but i also had school in there i had extracurriculars Mm -hmm. i did sports like i had stuff that i did beyond just the acting but as soon as i got to vancouver i was an actor right and i was a film and television actor and that I don't think people realize how much work goes into the film and the TV that you consume. I want like, to go what, there. I want to go there right now um, because I certainly didn't realize up to a point. And you know, I have uh, a wonderful actress in my life now, 
and my eyes have been opened as, as to what goes on inside the film industry and just how hard it is. Can you speak on a little bit from 18 to 25 years old of some of the challenges you've faced in running your own acting business as the actor in charge? Tell me a little bit about how that went. So the hardest, the biggest struggle that I had was proving to the outside world that I was uh, not a liability credit-wise mm. because you're self-employed and it's really hard to prove your income. And what is your income? Do you want my <laughs> net income or my gross income? Because the two are drastically different. Yeah. And yeah. the, you know, and, and two, uh, one of my biggest struggle was actually um, convincing my mother who is an accountant that I was self-employed despite the fact that she had been involved in my acting career for, uh, you know, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And when she, first of all, we didn't used to, we, I didn't have to file taxes until I was 18. Right, right. And I never earned enough to, to have to file taxes. Mm -hmm. And what I did earn, the majority of it had to get put into trust. So that, that when young Tyler's taxes were different than adult Tyler's taxes. Right, right. For sure. And trying to convince my mom that I was self-employed, I actually had to fire my mom as an accountant and hire an actual accountant who then had to go back through about four years of filed taxes and be like, oh, you way overpaid. And like get that walked back mm -hmm. and reviewed because that's a hard thing to review. It is, yeah. Get it filed. Mm -hmm. Like they, the government tends to, they're like, well, that's what you said. And you're like, okay. So then you have to prove going forward what legitimate expenses are. And then on top of that, you know, I'm, I moved out to Vancouver. I hadn't actually reached my 18th birthday, but I needed a place to live. Mm -hmm. So trying to convince landlords that you weren't a liability. And the funny thing is, is I was very fiscally responsible when I moved mm -hmm. out. Like I had a budget. I knew what I could afford. I knew how much typically I would bring in. I knew what my union negotiated contracts were. I knew what I could make doing extra work. Right. And so like I, I knew that I could earn X amount of dollars. And if I put 20% aside for living expenses, that's this is what I could afford for rent. Mm -hmm. Well, everywhere that I approached wouldn't lease to me because I was either too young or right. a credit risk. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having to like basically move down the transit line you know, houses get cheaper the further That's, out from downtown yeah, you yeah. go in Vancouver, right? <laughs> yeah. So I had started in like New West and Surrey and they wouldn't rent to me in Burnaby. And so anybody who's familiar with the geography of Vancouver knows that now I'm getting closer and closer to downtown. The only place that I could find was right downtown Vancouver. If anybody knows, it, the corner of Davy and Denman was the first place that would rent to me. Uh, David was the landlord's name. Mm -hmm. Really, really nice gentleman. Pretty sure he had a crush on me. And that was the only reason I got the apartment, but it was easily 200 to $250 above what my, my budget was mm -hmm. per month, which was an interesting conundrum because I was overspending, but then it uh, really put a fire under my ass to right, make sure that right. I was earning that extra bit of money. Um, and it ended up being great. I stayed in that apartment for three years until I moved just down the street to another one with my girlfriend. And it, it just, it, it basically proved itself because I was living downtown Vancouver. I was right off of English Bay. Mm -hmm. The Benson and Hedges Symphony of Fire, which was the large uh, fireworks celebration, multi-day fireworks celebration that happens in Vancouver. The barge was parked literally right outside of my window. And so I used to have these fireworks parties. They'd happen every year on my birthday. So I used to throw <laughs> these big birthday parties and say Benson and Hedges was celebrating for me. 
Um, then I'd blow out my candles, which was when the finale would go up. And then I'd go <laughs> at the end, I'd be like, I blew out my candles and everybody would laugh. It was fun. But that was, that was the biggest struggle was honestly um, getting other people to believe in me mm-hmm. because I already believed in myself and being like, no, you trust me. I'm, I'm worth the risk because uh, I'm not actually a risk. Right. I wouldn't come to you if I thought it was a risk because I don't risk things. I'm very, very risk averse, mm-hmm. like in, in business and in life. I'm very risk averse, which is hilarious because I was a stunt man and I used to specialize in high falls, jumping out of windows. Oh, wow. And people are like, isn't that scary? I'm like, it's actually the safest job that I ever had. <laughs> Legitimately. Like, how, how do you discover the first time that you can do that? I mean, was, was that by accident? Did you, were you thrown from a window? I mean, what, what makes it like, what makes you say, you know what? I'm going to sign up for this, man. I, I, I really fancy jumping out of a window. Um, I, I don't know how the progression goes. Like I knew that I didn't have an aversion to heights. Um, when my father was alive, he used to love to rope climb and go spelunking and stuff like that. So I was mm-hmm. always comfortable. I, I, I had, I was familiar with ropes and harnesses right. and, um, you know, just being suspended was never an issue. I was always the kid who loved to, to do the, the high swing. Like, you know, when you're on the swings and you, you do the yeah. underduck, yeah. people push you and you like, you try to get as vertical or as parallel to the, to the bar as you mm-hmm. possibly can. And then launch yourself. Like I used to love doing that, like set out uh soft landing mats and like launch myself off of my swing and try to land in the crash mat. So that was always a thing that was within me. And I was always, um, my mom put me in gymnastics when I was younger and I always had really good spatial awareness. So when I moved to Vancouver, the first agent that I had, uh, his agency was right next door to a stunt training school. Wow. And so I used to go in and, and, you know, hang out with the guys. And I, for a little bit, I, I played receptionist cause I had nothing better to do. So I would just sit and answer the yeah, phone. Yeah. And, uh, and then they let me train with them and I was tiny, you know? And so the, I'm, I'm, re- I'm five foot seven and 135 pounds. I am really fun to throw around. Right. Right. So like, you know, when we do like, they would do fight training scenes and they'd be like, Tyler, come here, come here, do this. And, you know, and then I, I'd, I'd start doing Pratt falls and like, and pushes like that. And then one day, um, Robin was like, Hey, we've got a stunt coordinator needs, uh, needs a double for this person and they want somebody shorter. So the fall looks bigger. Right. And I'm like, okay. He's like, how comfortable would you be doing, um, uh, you know, like a 20 foot high fall, like two stories. I was like, I, I don't know. Let's test it out. I don't know how I would feel until I get up there. Right. And you right. don't, you don't know how you'd feel until you get up there. And so uh, we went and we did uh, a couple of test runs. Um, I went to one of the local gyms, like the, um, not like a workout gym, but like a gymnasium for gymnastics. Right. Right. And they have those foam pits that the gymnasts do mm-hmm. the tumbles into. And I basically climbed up a rope and then jumped off of it. And I'm like, yeah, no, I could probably do that. And we practiced on the trampoline a little bit. And then, so they put me in touch with uh, the coordinator and, uh, and then we just worked together for about three months practicing this, this, uh, the techniques for this high fall. And then the next thing I knew I was getting higher and higher and higher. The highest that I ever did was a six story um, high fall into boxes. That is far. That is yeah. Six six stories without any boxes under, under use pretty, pretty fatal, man. Well, that's pretty far to jump, dude. But here's so here's the funny thing. I'm more scared of the 20 to 30 foot falls than I am of the 60 to 100 foot falls. 
Probably because you're more careful on the 60 to 100 foot falls, maybe? I don't Partially, know. but uh, on a 20 foot fall, something goes wrong. You're going to horribly mess up your life, but mm. you're still going to be alive. Yeah. You're just going to be crippled and drinking through straws for a the rest of it. Yeah. And that was always more terrifying to me than, than death. Like, well, yeah, I'm okay. I'm you, okay with my mortality. You're done with death after half a day with the uh, half a day with the Undertaker and the funeral director. It's it's all said and done. You know, it's the it's end. It's all of it. said and done. Yeah, yeah I just yeah. I don't I didn't ever want to be a burden to somebody. So actually, you know, those um, horribly crippling or um, life altering injuries are the ones that I'm more afraid of uh, yeah. than I am of, of of the ones that could really kill you quickly. There was a, a very famous steeplejack called Fred Dibner that used to say that about high falls. He says, you know, if, if it happens, it happens. It's not my problem after that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, fair. But <laughs> you had a very good point too. Like a lot, it doesn't matter the, the height, the amount of work that goes into making sure that somebody doesn't die doing mm -hmm. a stunt is Matt, like the, the amount of teams with to our original point, like what's the amount of work that goes into film? Like I don't, yeah. People, yeah. people see a high fall. It's two and a half seconds of celluloid. But there are months of preparation that go into that months, if not years of training mm -hmm. that go into being able to pull off that two and a half seconds and only have to do it the once too, because that's the thing. It's expensive to film those things. So yeah. you only want to yeah. do the stunt once and you don't want to have to be the person who has to go up and do it again because you did something wrong. Oof. If the camera doesn't roll or they don't capture it because of the tech thing on their end, that's fine. But you don't want to be the reason that they have to refilm. Yeah, yeah, man, I can imagine. I can imagine. And so, like, let's. There is so much to talk about, and so much that goes into acting and films behind the scenes um, that I I don't know that we've got time to to touch on all of it. I'd, I'd like to move forward with how you came out of acting into an engineering career and how that pivot happened. <laughs> well, so uh, a couple of things. Uh, my uncle, uh, who is just a brilliant businessman was a, a photogrammetrist and a cartographer and he when he was in the early 80s and he had a young family he had been um he was working for a company and they transferred him from their ottawa shop to a brand new shop that had opened up in vancouver mm -hmm. and him and a couple of other guys from this uh company had moved out and then the company went bankrupt and my uncle was out now in the most expensive city in all of the nation and with a young family and these colleagues and he was like listen if i put take out a second and a third mortgage on my house <laughs> yeah. i will have enough money that i can be the primary investor in buying up this equipment that the other company had already purchased right and now is basically on auction so we can get it at you know a 50 to 70 yeah. percent discount yeah, yeah, yeah. but we have to do it now mm -hmm. or it's going to go into receivership it's going to go to auction and we're not going to get it right so he had invested and grew uh what became triathlon mapping into a multi-million dollar enterprise one of the most respected mapping firms in all of north america like he was doing all these projects so when i wasn't doing the acting gig for one year when i had moved out to vancouver when i was first trying to get myself established and get a reputation in vancouver because the casting directors didn't know me right, my agent right. didn't really know me so for that first year i actually worked for my uncle mm -hmm. uh, full-time and then acted part-time 
Uh, and it was nice because he, he believed in me. So I worked a graveyard shift so that I was free all through the day to do anything. Um, he paid me a really good wage and I, I worked for his firm. So I had this background in scanning aerial photography and I understood photogrammetry and I understood the business a little bit. Mm -hmm. So when I retired from acting and again, I, it had become a grind and it just wasn't fun. And, and so I, I remember specifically the day that I knew that I needed to retire. I had gotten a callback. So as an actor, you go and you do an audition. Mm -hmm. And if they like you, but they don't know if you're going to get the role yet, they want to see a couple of different people. They do what's called a callback. And mm -hmm. it's exactly what it sounds like. They bring you back and you audition again. So I had auditioned and I'd gotten a callback. And now that's the second best thing that you can get other right. than getting the gig itself. Mm -hmm. And I remember being, uh, I, at the time I had moved from Van downtown Vancouver to a beautiful community in the interior of BC called Penticton. It's about a four hour drive from Vancouver. And I had auditioned at the studio and I was on my way back and I got a call from my agent literally moments before I would lose cell reception in one of the national parks. Mm -hmm. And, um, she was like, you've got a call back. I'm like, great. When? And she's like, they'd like to see you in the next hour. And I'm like, well, I'm already, I'm two hours away from, from the studio. So I won't be back in an hour. And she's like, well, just get there as soon as you can. And I remember in my heart being like, oh, I don't want to. And I know hundreds of actors who would die mm -hmm. just for the opportunity to audition. Never mind getting a callback. Like they already like you enough that they want you to have a callback. And I'm like, ah, but I'm already on the road and I just want to get home to my house. Mm -hmm. Like that, I knew at that point that I needed to to give it up. So I I did. I turned around and did the audition because I'm a professional and I believe in integrity and I believe in my word and and I my agent busts her butt for me so I better do the thing for her. Right. So I went and I did it. Ironically, I got the role. I booked it. And uh and I remember filming it and and the other guys were just so happy to be there cuz they cast five of us out of that that thing. And just being like, I just, I'm not enjoying this the way that they mm. are enjoying this. So I decided, um, I was already 25. All of the acting money that I had done, uh, prior to turning 18 had been put into trust until I was 25. Um, and there was a, an educational component where you got bonus money. If you used the trust money for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I mean, that only makes sense. Use all of this cash and go back to school. So I enrolled and, and went into photogrammetry because I was familiar with it. I remember um, my girlfriend who was now my wife, but my girlfriend at the time had just finished graduating from the school that I ended up going to. Mm -hmm. And I, so I asked her to bring home a program uh, of uh, courses. And I remember looking through it and there were like three that stood out to me. And I, I kind of gravitated to this digital mapping and I just, I, I went with it and that, that, grew everything else like everything sprung from there you know getting getting to have that engineering discipline but it was an it's an interesting one because most people think of engineers and they think of a very stale very dry very boring person and they're right um and uh, <laughs> photogrammetry is this weird kind of uh offshoot of geomatic engineering mm -hmm. where you're doing earth study but it's still a very artistic expression because you're building maps right and there's a lot of personal artistic flair that goes into cartography. Mm -hmm. 
And so I got to have an artistic expression within a very um, uh, mathematical driven discipline. It's, it's shocking the similarities. Um, I, I was in oil and gas law as a landman and I ended up really liking cartography and uh, they, that's what they told me in high school when I did the means assessment. I'm like, no, I'm going to be a drummer. They're like, no, you're going to make maps. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to be a drummer. And yet by my early 30s, I was certified in GIS through Esri and doing the ArcGIS stuff. And I, yeah. I thoroughly enjoy making maps. I find it incredibly um, challenging and therapeutic. It's like it's like playing Clue for a living sometimes, you know, yeah. putting those things together. So uh, Well, especially when you get into GIS, right? Yeah. And by the way, <laughs> shout out to Esri, great Canadian company. Um, and ArcGIS, I mean, when you start to put metadata behind mm -hmm. geographic information and make maps come alive, like I don't think people realize just how much GIS is integrated into their lives now. Oh, Anytime, I know. Like for me, right, I... Anytime I'm looking at a uh, Google Maps, I'm like, haha, I know all of the engineering that goes in behind that. And it's a lot. It's a lot yes. for somebody to be able to just be like, in your area, these are the places where you can find food. Yeah, but the, the amount of data that goes into that, um, I mean, that that's why I'm doing data science at school right now is, is to get better at that that part of it. Just data is gold. And GIS guys have a have a huge key to that. And uh, like, it, talk a little more, if you will, about uh, photogrammetry and, and what that is exactly. Because I've got here, it's extracting two-dimensional info to create three-dimensional models, uh, essentially. But like, I find it fascinating as, as to how that works. Can you, can you speak on your career uh, from a photogrammetry angle? Sure. And it's funny because that is technically correct, but the way to do it is actually in the reverse. You take 3D models and you use those to extract out all of the 3D terrain from imagery to then create 2D images that people can measure from. Wow. I just so looked at a, Google. I just looked at yeah. Google. <laughs> so, so, but Google's right. So, so it's not, it's not wrong because you start with two dimensional images mm -hmm. Um, in, in stereo pairs. So you take, I, I, I don't know if anybody would know this, like a, um, what are the, oh, I can't remember what they're called now. The, you ha, it was a red binocular looking thing yeah, with, with the a disc thing, on the, it. The, the clicky viewers. Yeah, they, those, a I viewfinder. Dude, I saw that in Target the other day and had to explain to my kids what it was and put it on their phone and showed them like, cause yeah. they had no idea what it was. <laughs> so I think they're like a view master or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, anyway, yeah. those, whatever they're called, that is stereo imagery, right? You have right. two, two, two dimensional images that have just slight overlap. And when you view them together, they're the 3d imagery comes. It's how all of the like 3d movies, it's how they work. Mm -hmm. There's just slightly offset imagery. And so what you do in photogrammetry, you fly a plane at a certain elevation uh, based on the scale of the map that you're trying to create. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch of math that goes into that. And you take pictures of the ground and then you lay out those pictures in what are called stereo pairs. So you have picture one and then picture two and you oh, they have a 60% overlap. And where that 60% overlap is or 80% overlap, uh, you have parallax. And then you try to, um, that creates this 3D terrain. And then you use that uh, you create these, you extract from those two pairs of 2D uh, pictures, the 3D terrain model, so that you know what the elevations are within those stereo pairs. But then you use that terrain model to then take away 
all of the 3D elements of the picture so that that lays flat. Because when we look at a map, a map is two dimensional. Right. And so you need if you I think people forget, you know, um, basic ge geometry. Um, the if you have a 90 degree angle, so I'm looking down and then I'm moving aside, uh, Pythagoras theorem comes in and says, yeah, but that distance along the top is actually longer than than that that 90 degree at the bottom. Right, right. So right. So you have you have line A, line B and the squares, the the square root of the two squares becomes the hypotenuse, which is yeah, so side C. The Euclidean side distance. C. Yeah, side <laughs> C is yeah, side C is real world distance, but mm -hmm. on a map that is incorrect. You need just the 2D ones. Mm -hmm. you, you need um, side A as opposed to B or C. And so that's basically the fancy math. We take we take it out so that you're you're re, you're just doing top distance and not any kind of uh, angular distance. And that's that's all photogrammetry is. And so anybody who's ever turned on Google Earth or Google Maps mm -hmm. and they've done the satellite image view yeah. of it, that those are those are thousands upon tens of thousands of pictures stitched together yeah. with the 3D relief taken out of them so that you can measure them with a ruler and accurately say, as the crow flies, this is 220 meters from where I am or three kilometers or right. four miles or whatever, however they're measuring. Man, <laughs> we're, we're going to nerd out on, uh, on mapping if we're not careful. <laughs> really? I can do it. I can do it. And so can you, Samuel. So you're right. We yeah. Gotta, like, we're steer clear and, and start I, serving some small businesses I, before I, they're like, what did we do? What did how we, did we get to Google we, Maps? How did we tune into a mapping podcast? Is there anything more boring? And you got two nerds talking about calculating angles and distances. So my I legitimately would start a plot. So you know how on the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon had fun with flags? I do not. I, I don't watch a whole no? lot of TV. Okay. But There's I'm a few people who will get that reference. And I would I would do the same thing. I, I would do, you know, uh, parties with maps because I would I would just love it. Yes. All right. Let's uh, let's let's get back to small business, man. Because um, like now, you're into um, into the speaker world. And you're you're an author. So let's um, let's leave map making on the cartography bench, and mm -hmm. look at writing your book and what the process of writing your book was like, and then also what you've achieved with your book. Because the power to speak naked. And a naked dude on the cover is—it's uh, it, quite attention-grabbing from a marketing standpoint. So, tell us about how you transitioned and, and becoming an author and, and the process of writing your book. Uh, so, the, I actually ended up writing the book because my agent told me I needed to, because I wanted to be a speaker. I, I've always been, obviously, uh, on stage mm -hmm. uh, since a very young age, and I, I think the first speech competition that I was ever entered in, I was ten years old, um, and so. I have I've been comfortable being on stage and presenting, and it was interesting because one of the things that set me apart as a businessman was my ability to give presentations. So I mm -hmm. loved doing the lunch and learns and inviting people to see the technology that we were putting out um, first within View Solutions, and then when I started uh, working for Sarpoint Engineering, I was kind of like the head presenter. Mm -hmm. And when I started my own company uh, as a safety consultant. Uh, one of the things that set me apart was giving really good safety presentations. Like most times, a safety presentation is an invitation to a lobotomy. Yeah, nobody and wants it. Nobody wants. Nobody that. wants mm -hmm. them. And I would get it so many 
so often people will come to me and be like, that was, that was probably the best toolbox talk. That was the best safety presentation I've ever seen. Why? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I legitimately don't know. So I had to, again, engineering brain, um, reverse engineer why it was that my presentations were better. And then when I figured out the secret sauce, I'm like, well, I can teach this. I can show other people how to do it because let's face it, we all know that safety presentations suck. So let's make yeah. them better and you know, do my small part to make it so that this information actually sticks. Because that's the thing that I think people forget. You're not going to a safety presentation so that somebody can just talk for 40 minutes. You're going because that information is critical to saving your life. But if you're unconscious for 20 of the 40 minutes, you don't get those critical components that I mean, could save the, your life. The only reason most of us go to safety meetings is so we can have some peace and quiet and play on our phone for a little bit. Like, right. And just, just check it off the thing. No, nobody. And I've, you know, in, in the past when, when I had the media company, um, I've created safety trainings and created safety content. And keeping people engaged is a huge, huge issue. Um, for that, I mean, we used a lot of fake blood and, and like screaming and stuff, and it, it captured their attention. But there's there's only so many times you can show John's foot getting run over by a forklift, you know? Yeah, and then, and exactly, and then people become desensitized to it, or then it <laughs> starts to look fake, and then they then it has the opposite effect because they laugh at it as opposed to <laughs> yeah. having it stick. This, so yeah, it's, it's, so it's it, like they expect us to use real blood. I'm like, come on, guys, we can't do that. Oh, sure you can. You just can't use real human blood. Go get hey, the pig stuff. It's I, fine. I, get it sanitized. <laughs> get it radiated. It'll be good. Um, <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't no. do that. Um, but so I started with with you know doing the safety consulting and doing um, these keynote presentations mm -hmm. and then training uh, executives and CEOs and upper management how to give better, more engaging presentations, which then translated into me teaching middle management how to do that and, and frontline supervisors, which was way more fun because they're the ones who have the real influence. And then uh, I was starting to, you know, speak at circuits and I was mm -hmm. having, you know, getting the nice little, what I would consider small gigs, the 100, 200, 300 people, paychecks under $5,000, little corporate thing, come mm -hmm. in and do it. And I, I wanted the big ones. You right. know, I wanted to be that keynote presenter who was making five, six figures of presentation. And my agent was like, yeah, sure that you could do that, but you're going to need a book. Mm -hmm. And so I, I ended up taking my training presentations on public speaking mm -hmm. on how to be an effective presenter and uh, stripping the audio from the video, transcribing the audio, and then compiling it into the book. It was actually writing the book was the easiest part of the book publishing process. It was the everything else that became an absolute nightmare. But writing the book was remarkably easy because I actually spoke my book. Right, right. And, you know, a, a lot of us overlook that. Um, many of you business owners out there that have blogs and that have podcasts and that have put together videos, you've probably got the content for your book already done. You just need to go get it and make it into a book. Like, um, but give us a uh, Give us a couple of hints, Tyler. What are some of the mistakes? Like, why why are we afraid to speak? I'm not. I've done it hundreds of times now. Um, and I was on stage at the first time when I was five or six. I played the Sultan of Morocco and had the singing part in the school play. And I can still remember the damn songs. And for me, it's never been an issue. So 
to teach somebody to public speak, I might just get on stage and do it. And I know that doesn't work. So what are some of the tips that you can give to, to the business owners that are listening that may help them get past that first time speaking on stage or that first time even turning their camera around and going, hey guys, what's up? It's, it's, it's Sam and I'm here doing this. How do you help people get over that hump? Well, so the first thing, and you had pointed it out, you're not actually afraid of public speaking. Like the, this myth that that 70 or 75% of people surveyed uh, are afraid of public speaking is inaccurate because the question is being framed incorrectly. Okay. If we were actually afraid of public speaking, commerce as we know it would collapse. Yeah. Anybody who has ever ordered food at a restaurant is not afraid of public speaking because you spoke in public, you spoke to a complete stranger if you didn't know your wait staff, uh, you asked for what you want and you got it. So anybody who has ever ordered food at a restaurant and had it come to their table and were able to consume it, spoke in public, spoke to a complete stranger and asked for what they want and got it. Right. So th this notion that we're afraid to speak in public is false. What we're actually afraid of is public judgment. Correct. And I know that yeah. because everybody who just heard that explanation was yelling at their device being like, no, Sam, no, Tyler. If I'm speaking in a restaurant, people aren't looking at me. Yeah. But if, if your worry is that people are looking at you, then you're not afraid of speaking in public. You're afraid of when you speak in public that you will be negatively perceived or negatively judged. So what we're actually afraid of is public judgment, mm -hmm. which is great because that's easy to address. Addressing somebody who is legitimately afraid of public speaking, very, very hard. I've only had one client in my 10 years of coaching who actually had a fear of public speaking, and she was remarkably difficult to work with. Not that she herself was difficult, but helping her overcome that fear right. was because that was a legitimate phobia. And what how I address it, it typically is not to actually deal with that deep-rooted fear. Dealing with a fear of public judgment is easy because with most people, they're saying that they have this fear of public speaking when it's really this fear of judgment. And it's like saying that you're having a heart attack when really what you're having is indigestion. Mm -hmm. So what you need is a quick dose of Pepto-Bismol and you're busy running around looking for defibrillators. Right, right, right. So when we can actually address the public judgment, the first tip I would give people is the audience is on your side. Like nobody goes to a presentation in any form or format hoping that it will suck. That's people true. Did, yeah. People did not tune in to the small business surgeon today to listen to Sam and Tyler talk thinking to themselves, Man, I hope this is a horrible conversation. I hope it devolves into an exploration of cartography and I get absolutely no value out of it. <laughs> you know, like they're not, yeah, they're like, I hope this is a horrible, horrible thing. I hope Sam and Tyler both forget what they're talking about. I, I hope they recognize that they're not experts in any way, shape, or form, and that this whole thing is just a, an absolute waste of my time. Right, right. Now, I, I get it. Like, people are showing up at presentations to receive information. Like, yes. But at the same time, it's, it's very difficult to get on stage. Like, look, I've been validated hundreds of times now. Like, I'm not afraid to get on stage at all. I know I'm an expert in what I do. And yet, at the same time, there's going to be those guys that haven't done it hundreds of times and that aren't validated in what they do. They're still going to be thinking, I hope I don't mess this up. 
And yet, yes, everybody's there looking to you as the expert. In their mind, you're the expert already. You're validated already just by being on the stage. But yes. you, you as the speaker don't feel it yet. Like, so, and that's, how, that's how we tackle it. That's how we tackle it. So you already, you, you've alluded to it. You've already said what needs to be said. Now we just need to reframe what you have said. Mm. And that is, if you are on the stage, you are the expert because we don't ask second best to present. Correct. So even if you don't feel like the expert on the inside, you are the expert publicly. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter that somebody else may have done it bigger, better, stronger, faster, greater than you. You are the person who was asked because you had the perfect level of expertise for that particular audience. Mm -hmm. So when you marry the two, the audience being on your side and you being the expert, now all you have to do is reframe your own internal thoughts. And I have an entire chapter in the book that is dedicated to overcoming those fears by reprogramming what it is that we're, we're saying to ourselves, because really the fear is coming from our own internal dialogue is, yeah. and the internal story versus the external reality, which is the audience is on your side and you are the expert. Well, so the longer you try to fight that, that's where the anxiety comes from you're because it's right. a conflict between the heart and the head. Yeah. And I, I think it's the, the fact that, uh, again, speaking from experience, it's the fact that we still see ourselves as a student. We still see ourselves yeah. as the incomplete package. We, there are people that we look up to that we consider more knowledgeable than us and that we're learning from. And so when you get on that stage, um, you don't carry into the fact that 300 people looking at you know less about you than what you're talking about. They're, they're all exactly. looking to you as the expert. And, and I think I've, I've had issues with clients getting that to stick in their minds, you know, like, like, look, this guy called you because he perceives you as an expert and because he trusts your opinion on this particular subject matter. It's okay to bill him and charge him for that. Well, and two things with that too. So yes, it is. In fact, I would encourage, not only is it okay, it's encouraged. You should be charging mm -hmm. for your time and your yes. expertise, recognizing that we are three things at any given time in this moment of time right now you sam and i tyler and you the audience who are listening are a student a peer and a teacher or mentor all at the same time Absolutely. all at the same time yeah yeah because there are people who do not know as much about your subject matter as you do there is a group of people who are at the same level who are there who hopefully you have around you to support you in your journey. Right. And there are people who you will always be able to learn from because there are people who have done it at a higher level than you. But just because there are those two layers, your peers and experts above you, that doesn't negate the fact that you are still an expert compared to the people who have not invested the time that you have into that subject matter. You and I are both probably mediocre drummers Ooh, you know i wouldn't say We're that not, i wouldn't say that no i'm where are you at fucking incredible you're you, fucking incredible you pick you pick the one thing i can just yeah uh good like pick another instrument dude <laughs> no i so that's the thing i want to be so there you go i've been drumming for 30 years right how are you still and, mediocre like you surely oh, you should be like come on uh, no because because here's the thing in my head 
I hear people who do amazing things. I look at the Neil Pertz and, you know, uh, even, you know, all my, all my favorite drummers are dead currently. Um, but you know, they, I look at these, these incredible musicians and I go, I can't do that. I keep trying. I keep trying to get faster. I keep trying to get better meter. I go and I drum in the bands that I drum in. And they're like, you're really good, Tyler. That That's because like, yeah, you're judging yourself against Neil Peart and, and not whether or not you can sit in the pocket. Like yeah. the, the most amazing drummers, they sit in the pocket and they smash it on two and four every time. And everybody knows where the beat is and they're reliable and they show up and they don't speed yeah. up and they don't slow down. And like, yeah. there's a lot to be in an amazing drummer that doesn't revolve around how fast you can go. Because those drummers can go faster than me, but by the time they get to the end, they're, they're you know, 15 beats There's, a minute faster than they were when they started. You know, that doesn't, yeah. that, that doesn't yeah. add up, man. <laughs> we, started, we started at 60 and somehow we're at 72. It, it's yeah, be, no. It's because and, of those triplet fills, man. They got to get all the triplets in and then they go faster. Got to get all the triplets like, in. Well, yeah. And that's exactly it, you know. And if you <laughs> if you don't at least do a couple of paradiddles in there to show off your your chops and I mean, throw in some some rudiments, then, then you're I, are you really right. Are you really drumming? But again, yeah. most drummers, like, and, and, and I speak from experience because I did this. It was all about how fast can I get? How many beats can I fit in this hole? And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that, that I actually learned about space in songs and letting the beat breathe yeah. and letting the, letting, the, letting the rhythm actually circle around the beat instead of hitting smack on it every time. And, and like, yeah. it, I don't we're, we're going to start a drumming podcast. I, I fucking, I love drumming. Um, it's my end goal is to, to be a musician again. But unfortunately, I like doing this a, a lot more. And this, this is a lot more lucrative than drumming. You know? And see, and this is why I will always drum as an amateur. Because right. it's, it's a fun hobby to have. I really enjoy it. Um, but again, it doesn't, it doesn't pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Man, does it no. fill my soul. Oh, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't yeah, pay I, the bills. I, I love it. But again, when when you play as a professional and you're clicked up and you're in sync and there's lights and there's choreography and everything's got to be bang on, it's very difficult to play at a level below that. And the only way I can be professional is to be on tour constantly. And I, I kind of like being at home and like not being on tour. So, And uh, so that is my point. You and I are at a high amateur level. Right. Which was my original point. Oh. We, we can... We can, we can sound good yeah. we can sit in on a set we can jam with fellow musicians yes. and be there mm -hmm. we could probably show somebody who has never touched a set of skins or sticks before how to drum and how to get a yeah. beat out all day yeah. but we also have a a peer group of other drummers who would be like oh yeah no you know samuel is good he's better than tyler tyler's not bad but you know he could he could get better a little bit better meter and but then we have those those higher level right ones. the ones you know the travis barkers of the world where yeah. you're like oh wow or like dave grohl even though he's not technically a drummer anymore he will always be a drummer in my heart you know he's he, i look at him and i go man not only do you hit hard but you hit well and in time and I, I would give i would make him if i had to make rank one of the most underrated uh, drummers in the on the world i i would say him even though he's well renowned for his uh percussion and fred armistead who is the comedian who's just amazing on a set oh, shit. <laughs> if you I ever get that. a chance to watch one of his specials where he gets and sits on drums i remember watching one uh, special where he went through 
all of the eras of the drums. So like drums in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000s. And he just went through how the kits changed and how the style of drumming changed all while making jokes, doing it like that. That was pro. That would be fun and, to see. Yeah. And so again, when you are at, like, I can speak competently to drumming. Right. But I also know what audience would be appropriate for my level. And so this is, this is where anybody can speak on a topic. Right. And the best thing to do is to speak on the topic that you are a subject matter expert in. Because the, uh, the audience will look to you and recognize that. Those who are peers of you will appreciate that you know what you know. Right. Those who are looking up to you as the expert won't know the difference one way or the other. And those who you look up to as experts will either recognize your level and be appreciative of, of you acknowledging where you're at or probably more likely won't even be in your audience. Exactly. Man, it, it reminds me, on, on the musical analogy, it reminds me of something my dad once, once told me when I was scared to get on stage. And I would have been about 12, maybe 13 at this point, and I was, I was starting to actively play out. And um, he told me, look, if, if somebody says you shit, he says, just pass them your drumsticks and say, show me how to do it. And he's like, nine times out of 10, they'll go away. And one time out of 10, they'll be better than you and you'll learn something. And I said, well, yep. you know, that, that, that's how it is. But like, um, you, you've got to understand that nine times out of 10, the people that are judging you don't have your experience and don't know how to do what you're doing. And you are the subject matter expert. Uh, you're just worried about the opinions of, of people that, that really don't have a, a leg to stand on when it comes to what you're talking about. Well, and let's acknowledge the fact that Mr. Smith is a smart, smart man. <laughs> oh, Dad, Dad, you just got called out as smart, mate. So, um, yeah. yeah, now you better step up. <laughs> well, and it, it, it's true. We, as long as, and here's the, the real key too. Everybody's looking for an authentic speaker. And for me, I hate that word. It's an industry buzzword. I think it's overused. And I think it's become an excuse for people to behave poorly on stage too, because it's just who I authentically am. Mm. For me, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. If you know who you are at your core, then it's very easy for you to present because you will present within your wheelhouse right? without trying to pretend to be something that you're not. And that's the, the, that I, the biggest bit of advice that I would give people is don't fake it till you make it. No. Mm -mm. Don't continually grow your craft. Mm -hmm. If this is your first presentation, do it as a first presentation. Yeah. Be okay with a little bit of failure because that is just a learning opportunity. And be gracious with your with your audience. Be and like, tell them, you know, this is my first tell time. Them. Like what happens and what happens at work? something happens and, and and you get all mad at somebody and then all of a sudden it's their first day it's their first week they're still training yeah. you give them grace right yeah but i'm with you on authentic being a completely overplayed buzzword i i hate the sound of, of of authentic now and yet the problem is you're absolutely right it's present at the level that you're at if you're a four out of ten present the best four out of ten you can and, and figure out how to be a five on your next presentation don't oh, yeah. lie about it you know? And there's, and again, there's nothing wrong with it. And the funny thing is, is the more you engage your audience, the better your presentation will be. Mm -hmm. 
One of the fastest ways to engage your audience is to be honest with them. Look, this is what I know about it. I am still learning here. Right. This is the journey that got me here because nobody knows your journey, your story better than you. So if you present from that storytelling uh, paradigm where people can then see what your journey is and why you feel or have the, uh, the expertise that you have, why you have that opinion that you have, like it's all formed somewhere. Yeah. I promise you, there is always a counter argument to anything that you think. Mm -hmm. So instead of being worried about it, present you and be like, this is why I feel this way. And if you do have any, any uh, counter dialogue, welcome it instead of trying to hide it. Be like, great, let's hear. And because you will always get dissenting opinion, but you'll always get supporting opinion as well. And you can't improve on anything unless you take that into account. Like it, it's a constant cycle of make the speech, uh, assess the feedback, tweak the speech, make it a little better for next time. And, and it's this build, measure, learn cycle that I think that we don't give ourselves enough grace and say, look, you need to make a public speech and see what goes right and see what goes wrong. And then the yeah. next, next time you can do it again. And you've gotta be prepared to start out presenting at a four or five and slowly grow it to a 10. Yeah, and to wrap up this conversation of ours, Sam, the, <laughs> if I was to give one bit of advice to people on how to do that really well, mm -hmm. that is the thing you're afraid to say is probably what your ideal audience needs to hear. Oof. And the people who have the courage to say that are the ones who are viewed as leaders. And so really the challenge is to find the courage within yourself to be vulnerable and expose yourself in that way. Because once you do that, nobody can take it away from you. They can't attack you. It's, it's that, you know, anybody who's ever seen the movie Eight Mile with yes, Eminem, yes. at the end, how does he win the rap battle? He destroys the other guy's argument by coming up and saying, yeah, I am white trash. Yeah, my girlfriend cheated on me. Yeah, my mom is this. Yeah, I am this. Cheddar Bob but shot himself. Yeah. So what? I love that so scene. What? I love it in the fact that he just turns it back around. And now say something they don't know. This is me. Yeah. Now, now tell them something new. And, and if you t do that in your presentations, you will always have the audience on your side. You wins them over instantaneously. Mm -hmm. You're like, this is who I am. This is, these are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. This is why I'm only going to talk about this. If you want to talk about this, you need to go to a different presentation because mm -hmm. I can only talk to this level. But man, can I talk at this level? <laughs> it wasn't until I started being honest and opening up and talking about the failures I'd had in business and, and the alcoholism that I'd you know, suffered from and, and all this other stuff. It wasn't until I started being honest and open with an audience that I actually started to develop and build relationships with an audience. And I think that's a real key takeaway here is, is that openness and that honesty is what leads you to building that audience. Well, it's because it's that we have an innate BS meter as human beings. Mm -hmm. We know, we know when somebody is full of it. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get over that is to recalibrate the meter. Mm -hmm. So if, if I am upfront with you and I say, these are the struggles that I've had, this is where I came from. This is how I have gotten to this point. These are the mountains that I still have yet to summit. Yeah, yeah. But hey, these are the foothills that I have crossed with ease then we can have a proper dialogue and it, it leads to a place of curiosity too. Like for me, I'm constantly learning all of my various crafts. Yeah. 
and you know and it's so much easier for us to geek out and find those common <laughs> themes too because you can say this is where i'm at and this is how i feel and you can have that those common yes. the, the common words and the common dialogue man tyler it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show mate i have two questions to ask before we finish up i know we're we're running up on time and they're just they're just two simple questions um the first one is and and we may have already crossed this uh, off the list but i'd like to revisit it real quick this show is aimed at guys that are five or ten or even 15 years behind our trajectory and where we're at in business um if you could speak to you from 10 years ago or if you could speak to a guy that's now 10 years behind us, what's that one piece of wisdom that you drop on him? Uh, that your ideal audience is you five years ago. Tell yourself what the, this conversation that we're having right mm -hmm. now, the advice that I am giving you is from me 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I remember as a speaker starting out because I'd been a performer, I thought I could speak on anything. Just give me the script. I'll say it. I'm good at it. I can deliver it. I'm a professional performer. It's mm -hmm. what I can do. And I never booked gigs because of that. It was the it was the hardest thing for me to do. And 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 I remember, you know, having people who I looked up to and respected and peers and and mentors who were like, Tyler, you got to pick a topic. I'm like, what topic could I possibly talk on? <laughs> yeah. Like, really? Like, what could I do? It wasn't until I realized that my superpower was my speaking. So speak about speaking. Yeah. And speak on why you're good at speaking and where those failures were. And and this, so my advice to anybody is, if you if you are struggling with who your avatar is or who you are, who you're needing to speak with or what you could possibly speak on or what your expertise is, talk to yourself five years ago. Mm -hmm. The alternate to that is, uh, what do you what do people seek advice from you the most? Like, what is the thing that people come to you? What are you known for? Right. It might be how to, to tie a fly. And that has nothing to do with your vocation, but you're really good at fly fishing and you could tie a really good fly. Mm -hmm. That could be the thing that you speak about. That's where your viral TikToks are going to come yeah. from because you're yeah, going to be passionate. Is. You're going to find the people who are inside of that community and they're going to they're gonna run with it. So again, it ties back to that. The thing you're afraid to say is probably what your ideal audience needs to hear. It's mm -hmm. the thing that gnaws at you on the inside that needs to be let out. So let it out and you will discover your ideal audience very quickly. It's, it's funny how you hit on that in, in that this is where the small business surgeon came from. It's that I'm talking to, I'm talking to the obese alcoholic version of me from his early thirties that had everything in business except balance and a real life. You know, I'd, I'd got the success and I, I was fat and miserable. And so yeah. I'm literally talking to me from 10 years ago. That's, that's why I do this show. It's, it's to help those guys. So, dude, really, really well done today on nailing a bunch of things. Tyler, I can't thank you enough for coming on and for hanging out with us. Um, so my final question is obviously for those guys that have enjoyed listening to uh, cartography, drumming, public speaking, and everything in between, where can they follow you online? Where can they go show you some love? And uh, maybe where can they learn a little bit more about working with you in the future? Oh, the best place, the the resource with all the resources is the website, which is SeanTylerFoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N. Scene. T-Y-L-E-R. Scene. F-O-L-E-Y. Yeah, <laughs> scene. Scene Foley. Um, but honestly, if they're they're probably going to post the the link in, in the show notes. Oh, yeah, and they're we will. Already, yeah, they're already on your platform. Mm -hmm. So what I would ask humbly, Sam, of your audience, if they're regularly listening to the Small Business Surgeon, um, they know you first, 
So yeah. they're they're learning about me through you, but they come to you regularly. So before they come to my website and show me some love, I would appreciate it if they could show you some love first. So before <laughs> they go to the show notes to find my website, if they could go to your show, because they're already here. They're already so here. All you need yeah. to do. All, all you need to do is hit pause and give the small business surgeon a five-star review. Oh, dude, that helps and don't so skip much. through the comments. The comments is not there for decoration. It is there to be used. That's so actually fun, use yeah. it. When you give the five-star review, please let Sam know why. Why do you come back? What are you getting? What is one of your favorite takeaways that he's provided? Or one? what was your one of your favorite guests? Like, what is it that you enjoy about the small business surgeon? That's going to help all of us. It's going to help you. Because Sam will then know what content you're regularly consuming and what you want, we, and he'll be able to bring more of that to the show. We may have if he to brings make a... more of what you want to the show, you will be more entertained. You will be more informed. And if there's more people coming to the show to listen to the really good stuff that Sam's being able to bring to the small business surgeon, then this episode will probably get more views, which means more people will know about me, which means that I'm being further too. So it's helping Dude, all it. of us if you give a five-star review. I love now, it. I love it. Here, here's my promise. Go ahead. If you are willing to give Mr. Samuel Smith and the small business surgeon a five-star review and then come to my website, right at the top of the page, we have an invitation to join my private uh, and exclusive Facebook group called Endless Stages. And if you come through the website as opposed to finding it uh, through Mark Zuckerberg's site, which you can search it there mm -hmm. by all means, but if you come through Mark, you won't get the free stuff. Come through my website, SeanTylerFoley.com, you'll get access to the private Facebook group, but we'll also give you a free PDF download of oh, my wow. book. So it saves you the $17.95 and you get a free PDF download of the number one best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. And I will also give you access to my Drop the Mic Speakers training series, which is a series of seven five-minute videos. So within the course of a week and a coffee break, you can learn how to be a more effective, more skilled presenter. And I have all of the tips and tricks that I've learned over 40 years of public speaking condensed down into very easy, digestible, very quick to implement strategies that you can use on the Drop the Mic Trainer series. So we'll give you access to the training videos, wow. access to the book, and access to my Facebook group where I go live every Tuesday at noon Pacific, three Eastern time, and present uh, to uh, the audience, whoever happens to show up. I go live for 20 minutes and train whatever happens to be the hot topic of, from the group that week. So you can pose a question and I will answer it live and that is my gift to your audience. That's awesome, but, man. Yeah, but go ahead. No five-star review. Free <laughs> gifts for you. I love it. Dude, you I'm... give Sam and the small business surgeon a five-star review. I love Otherwise, it. Uh, we're, not, we're not up for business. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Um, that, that's awesome. And I'm going to go over there and sign up for that later today myself and get on there. And, and who knows? Maybe we'll throw some uh, cartography questions in there. You know? <laughs> I'll be happy to answer them. It, they'll be a lot easier than mapping three-dimensional, multi-dimensional points inside of N space. I, I think I've had enough of that. I'd rather like go back to regular maps. Um, dude, it has been an absolute blast um, chatting with you for this last hour, man. Thank you so much. And thank you for pouring into the audience, man. It's, it's been a real pleasure, Tyler. Thank you for being here. It was my joy. We'll talk to you soon, Sam. Guys, that was Sean Tyler Foley. Please do me a favor, leave us a review, run over in the show notes there, click his link and uh, show him some love on his website. And uh, man, I'm definitely gonna be signing up for that Facebook group and checking out his live trainings because uh, the power to speak naked is something that I think we should all work on. All right, that's gonna do it for me for today. Check out the link in the show notes, leave us a review and uh, you'll be good this week. Stay safe and check in for Friday Fire. See ya.
This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week.